Well, Pastor Brett is on vacation this week. How do you like that? He, he planned it just right to be out of here this week, right? Yeah. He is uh, enjoying a week at Lake Arrowhead with his family in the, in the mountains there in Southern California. And I know that he will be blessed and, and we look forward to his safe return for sure. I know that uh, he has been uh, faithful to be leading you through the study of the Old Testament and has been in Second Chronicles most recently, as of a couple weeks ago. And um, I'd kind of like to jump off of there, Second uh, Chronicles uh, chapters 29, 30, and 31 is where uh, Pastor Brett was two weeks ago. And this is the story of Hezekiah. And we know that Hezekiah... Uh, was a good king. More than that, he restored biblical worship to the house of Israel. He was the one who brought back temple worship. And after, after it had been uh, completely missing from the life of the people of Israel for close to 200 years, an amazing reality to just stop and ponder that the people of God, those who are chosen by him, called by his name, would be so long without him. It's, it, it, it really boggles my mind that that indeed is the case here in the story of, of uh, Hezekiah. And, and more than that, the kings of Israel. And, and how... Um, and when I say Israel, I'm speaking Israel and Judah, the whole package. This whole nation that was created to be God's people forsook God himself and decided to walk completely contrary, in fact, even in rebellion to the ways of God. Hezekiah brought back this worship that was long instituted before and instituted by God for a number of different reasons. Not the least of which is the very first commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Loving God is really at the heart of what worship is about. And I'm struck by the fact that, that um, Israel was so easily led astray. When you think about the fact that um, this, this nation that was birthed out of, out of Egypt um, well, in, a, in many senses, it had its, it's had its birthplace there out of deliverance and crossed the, crossed the desert only to, to uh, say no to God's provision uh, at, at the Jordan, right? And so they ended up wandering in the desert for 40 years. And in the desert, they, they experienced God's faithfulness in spite of their unfaithfulness. 
40 years later, they come back and they finally enter the promised land. And they begin to take, take the land as God intended them to take, and yet very often did not follow through with the Lord's clear instruction. And as a result, they ended up in a, in a compromising situation in which they were living side by side people who denied God and soon started the practice of incorporating the traditions, the religious traditions of the, of the pagan people that lived in, that, in the land with their own traditions. Soon it became all mixed up and you couldn't tell what was what. And that whole process strikes me as being um, honestly unthinkable. When you think about the miraculous things that God has, had done among them on their behalf, how could in, in, in our, my little pea brain, I can't figure out how you connect God's miraculous work with, with uh, this way over here that completely denies him. What's in between is humanity. Fallen humanity. It's no, it's no accident that the people of God are likened unto sheep throughout the scripture. Jesus himself uh, was very clear in likening the disciples uh, to, to sheep. And it's, and it's interesting to me that 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 is the case. I mean, why would he, why not geese? <laughs> why not eagles? Um, why not rams or, or, or whatever? I, the, the bottom line is that he likens us to sheep, and there's a good reason for that. For, for a long time, I, I, my dad told me uh, years ago that uh, sheep were nearsighted. And that is a curious reality of, of what they are, who they are as sheep. And it's interesting, I did a little research on that, and that's only partially true. Sheep are, are, have an extraordinary sense of sight. Their pupil is, um, is uh, a horizontal slit which enables them to have extraordinary peripheral vision. In fact, um, it's, it's said that sheep can see behind them without turning their head. They have incredible peripheral vision. Field of vision about 270 to 320 degrees. Think about that. 360 is full circle, right? That's, that is absolutely amazing. With that, however, they do not have the perception of depth in front of them. They can see all around them, but their issue is that they cannot see in front of their nose. <laughs> they, they, they have great difficulty with depth, depth perception. And 
I think there's a reason why God likens us unto sheep. We have a real problem with depth perception a lot of times, don't we? We cannot discern very often in our own fleshly fallen nature. We seem to not be able to discern that which is good and that which is evil. Because our depth perception is out of whack. See, interesting as well that with that wide peripheral vision, sheep are aware of their surroundings. They're also very nervous creatures. They are um, easily skittish. And so with the awareness of everything around them and yet being frightful, if you will, sense is that they are frightened easily by anything and everything around them. That inability to see clearly right in front of them leads them to move from one clump of grass to another clump of grass to another clump of grass without exactly knowing where they're going. And that peripheral vision um, being uh, frightened and very aware of their surroundings um, creates that nervous creature that soon gets off track, easily gets off track. And that's the picture of humanity. It's the picture of the children of Israel. They are, they are easily led astray by their own insecurities. It's interesting. I, I, um, I, we watched the movie the other night, The Shack. How many of you have, have read the book or seen the movie, The Shack? Yeah, very interesting take on, on who God is. And one of the, one of the um, statements that, uh, that stood out to me in watching that movie was this statement. God says to the, the young man in the movie, you don't believe I'm good. Do you? You don't believe I'm good. Otherwise, you would trust me. Otherwise, you would not doubt that my hand is full of good provision for you. And that's really who we are as well. A lot of times we find ourselves in this, in challenged by various things, in, in the world, and we forget so easily that God is good and his promises never fail. And so if we look at that as the human condition and Israel, the children of Israel, as plain old ordinary human folks, an awful lot like us, perhaps it's not so hard to see how they wandered away so quickly because they easily, quickly forgot God's provision in the past and his promise for the future. Now, I'd like to take a look at tonight at this 
human condition in light of this section of scripture where Pastor Brett took you uh, a couple weeks ago, this resurgence of biblical worship. And I'd like to suggest to you that because of our human condition, because of our honest propensity for um, getting lost and stubbornly so being lost, uh, our prideful self-centeredness, getting in the way of, of our understanding of God, it serves as a vigilant or a constant and very necessary call to worship. I think sometimes we, we come to church week after week and we, we, uh, we participate in worship because, well, that's what we do, right? That's what we do on the weekend. Some of us are hungry for that. Some of us come out of habit and some of us come kicking and screaming, quite honestly. And yet the discipline of worship is something that is absolutely critical for us as believers if we are going to stay in touch with God as he intended because our human condition is such that it will, um, it will easily lead us astray. Worship is that discipline of coming again and again and again before the Lord and being reminded of who he is and who we are in light of who he is. Worship is about the heart. And it's something that we must practice. The word practice um, bears with it the connotation of doing it over and over and over and over. Dan, you play guitar really, really well. How did you get there? Lots of practice. Lots of practice. And there are plenty of us mediocre guitar players who don't practice, and we're never going to be great. We're never going to get there because we don't repeat it. We don't go over and over and over. But that's the requirement of us in our worship to practice it, to put it in place over and over and over again. It is something that we do intentionally, very purposefully, not casually. Not, worship is not something that just happens to us. Um, it is something that we, we enter into intentionally. It is the practice of giving our full undivided attention to God. That's the definition I really like to use when it comes to worship. The task of worship is giving our full undivided attention to God. It's not the fuzzy feeling that happens when the music crescendos and the lights are low and, and we have this unique moment. Yeah, that, that's a beautiful moment in worship. But the task of worship isn't getting to the feeling. The task of worship is giving my undivided attention to God. 
Hebrews chapter 10, the writer says there in verse 23 through 25, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. There's a corporate commitment to worship as well. We often think of, uh, uh, honestly, in our culture, we are very individualistic, right? Um, it's, um, after all, it's all about me. That's kind of the mantra of our, of our day and age, right? And we tend to operate with this idea around worship, too. We, we tend to operate that worship is a personal communion between me and God. And it is absolutely that, but it, that's not all it is. It also involves those around us. There's a reason why we come together to worship. We come together to spur one another on, to encourage one another in giving our attention to God. And, and that, that specific piece is something, again, that requires discipline. It's an intentional thing. We don't, we don't saunter in here by mistake. We come on purpose. And we, we enter in purposefully. Too often we think of worship as, as the activity, simply making music together or praying, either alone or with others. And those are the vehicles by which we worship. But those activities are not the essence of worship. Worship is what happens in our hearts and in our minds. And more precisely, worship happens between God and us. It is, it is a very intentional relationship that we practice with God. And it is between he and I personally, and it's between he and I and all of you. That is, that is the, the, the essence of worship. And in the midst of this discipline, we often experience those electric moments when... when um, we experience God and he connects with us in extraordinary ways. How many of you have experienced that aha moment in the midst of worship? Yeah, thank God for that. That is, a, that is an absolute blessing that he bestows upon his people. But that's not, the, uh, that's not the sum total and that's not necessarily even the goal of worship. The goal is the connection. And it's in these moments that we discover God's great intention for us, his heart for us, uh, his heart and, mind, uh, uh, heart and mind functioning in unison with each other and with his, that, that connectivity going on. Now, that all happens in a context. And we call that context, we'll call that context the environment of worship, the environment of worship. Now, I'd like to challenge this all to think as environmentalists for a moment, okay? Think about, um, 
think about what is the appropriate environment for worship. What is the appropriate environment for us to pursue the task of worship, that is giving our full undivided attention to God? What does that look like? My sense is that it's probably a little bit different for each one of us. Some of us find that environment to be um, uh, let me say this, fully engaging uh, with with uh, musical noise, and so much so that you got to feel the music. Ever been at a place where you feel the music? There are some, even in our congregation, who say, I can't stand to feel the music. <laughs> They're afraid to feel the music. And others who, who absolutely must feel the music to feel engaged. Um, we could talk about why that happens, but, but the bottom line is there are different tastes. There are different styles. There's different content. All of that, all of that comes into play for all of us um, in individual ways. But we share that with one another. We share that corporately. This environment of worship, I'd like to take us back to 1 Chronicles chapter 16. If you would go there with me, 1 Chronicles chapter 16. Here we see, um, we see David bringing the Ark of the Covenant to... Um, to its resting place. And um, the Ark of the Covenant, we know, is that um, article of worship, we could call it that, an article of worship that included uh, very important elements in the life of Israel that spoke of God's profound intervention into their life as a people. And it's a sacred item, right? Ark of the Covenant is a sacred item. And it's been on a journey. It's been on a, um, a pretty securitous journey um, for a very long time, almost 370 years. It was in Shiloh and, and resting there. And, um, and uh, the Israelites went out um, in 1 Samuel um, chapter 4. We read of, of uh, after losing a battle to the Philistines, um, Israel decides, well, maybe we should take the Ark of the Covenant with us into battle because after all, that's God's presence, right? And we should take that into battle with us. And, and what happens? They end up losing the battle and the ark is stolen from them. The Philistines take it. And it ends up in, uh, in a Philistine city. And um, bad things start to happen to the Philistines. And they, they soon discover that they better get rid of this, this thing called the ark. Because it's, it's bringing bad things to their community. 
And so it, it, it starts to make its way back and, and um, it's moved from, it's moved from uh, various cities and finally um, back to, back to um, a place called Kirat Yarim. And it is there for about 20 years. And it's, it's there um, on the, in the process of getting there. There is an encounter where one of, um, one of David's men reaches up and, and they bring it on a cart. And one of, one of David's men reaches up to steady it. And God strikes that man dead because he touches the ark. And um, David gets really upset about that. And, and uh, how dare you, God, we're trying to bring your ark back into our community. And, and, uh, and uh, little does he, re- well, he soon realizes that they've gone about this all wrong. And they've not followed God's intention and his design for handling the ark. And um, eventually it ends up back in the city of David. And um, that process is, um, is, is one in which there is this sense of God's presence finally returning. And First um, Chronicles 17, if we look at chapter 17, David then decides that perhaps God ought to have a house to live in instead of this tent. Um, Chapter 17, and it came about when David dwelt in his house that David said to Nathan the prophet, behold, I'm dwelling in a house of cedar, but the ark of the covenant of the Lord is under curtains. In other words, it's in a tent. Then Nathan said to David, do all that is in your heart for God is with you. And it came about that same night that the word of God came to Nathan saying, go and tell David, my servant, thus says the Lord, you shall not build a house for me to dwell in for I have dwelt in a house for I have not dwelt in a house since the day that I was brought up, that I brought up Israel to this day. But I have gone from tent to tent and from one dwelling place to another. In all places where I have walked with all Israel, I have spoken a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people saying, why have you not built for for me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from the from following the sheep, that you should be leader over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make you a name like the name of the great ones who are in the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may dwell in their own place and be and may dwell, excuse me, and be moved no more. Neither shall the wicked waste them anymore as formerly, even from the day that I commanded the judges to be over my people Israel. And I will subdue all your enemies. Moreover, I will tell you that the Lord will build a house for you 
And it shall come about when your days are fulfilled that you must go to be with your fathers and I will set up one of your descendants after you who shall build who shall be one of your sons and I will establish his kingdom he shall build for me a house and I will establish his throne forever who is that that builds that house Solomon builds that house we know that that uh, David spent the rest of his life preparing for the building of that house. He collected, he collected um, all of the materials so that Solomon could, could build the house of God. And, and this, this desire for the presence of God is, I think, for us a, a good picture of what it means to worship. Because after all, giving our full undivided attention to God in the act of worship is what it means to commune with God. It means to share his presence. And and the presence of God is part and parcel of of what it means to worship. Take note in verse 2 of chapter 17. Nathan says to David, do all that is in your heart, for God is with you. The heart is really where the center of worship is all about. Worship is about the heart and the condition of it. What does a heart fit for worship look like? Let's look at verse 16 of chapter 17 of, of, of First Chronicles. This is David's response to, to the Lord's message through the prophet Nathan to him. Then David the king went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I? O oh Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me this far? A heart fit for worship, first of all, is humble. Humble before the Lord. None of us can presume to be haughty in any way and expect to have audience before God. The very beginning of relationship with God is understanding our need of him, recognizing our desperate need of him. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for they will see God. They are the ones who will see God. Humility is is the number one characteristic of the heart that is fit for worship. Number two is gratitude. As we read the rest of this passage, verse, let's look at verse 17. And this, was a, and this was a small thing in your eyes, O God, but you, you have spoken of your servant's house for a, for a great while to come 
and has regarded me according to the standard of a man of high degree, O Lord God. What more can David still say to you concerning the honor that is bestowed on your servant? For you know that your servant, O Lord, for your servant's sake and according to your own heart, you have wrought all that this greatness to make known all these great things. O Lord, there is none like you, neither is there any God beside you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. David is overwhelmed with gratitude for what God has done for him and through him. That gratitude is part of the characteristic of a heart that is fit for worship. Let's go to Second Chronicles chapter 3. 2 Chronicles chapter 3. Here we see Solomon beginning his work on building the temple. And he be, begins to build on Mount Moriah. Um, Mount Moriah, is, that, is there significance to that at all? Could it have been any other hill that God, that God would have had his temple built on or his house built upon? Mount Moriah, we know in, in Genesis chapter 22, we read the story of Abraham who took his son Isaac and offered him as a sacrifice of obedience to the Lord that took place on Mount Moriah, this very place. At the end of 2 Samuel, we see David um, in this, oh, pretty much kind of a last ditch effort of his kingdom as, as king, makes this ridiculous, well, maybe, it wasn't ridiculous in his eyes, but it sure was folly in God's eyes to take a census of the people. And, and God was not pleased with that because it was a sign that David was probably about to try to gather taxes in order to prop up the kingdom. And, and God looks with displeasure on that. And he confronts David with that reality. And there at the end of 2 Samuel, um, we see David uh, uh, crying out to the Lord, desiring to make a sacrifice. And he goes to buy a threshing floor. And the owner of that threshing floor says, hey, I'll just give it to you. And hey, by the way, here's the oxen used for the threshing. You can use them for your sacrifice. And David says, I will not, I will not offer to God what costs me nothing. Very iconic um, scripture speaking of the fact that one of the characteristics of a heart that is fit for worship is one that is able and eager to offer sacrifice. Sacrifice that costs. It's one thing to give out of excess. It's another thing to give out of need and provide for the Lord a sacrifice. That is... Um, that is 
a heart that is fit for worship. Second Chronicles chapter five. Let's go there. Verse 11. This is, um, this is after the ark is brought into the temple that, that Solomon has completed. And this is the ark of the covenant coming in and verse 11. And when the priests came forth from the holy place for all the priests who were present and sanctified themselves without regard to divisions and all the Levitical singers, Asaph, Heman, Jeduthun, the, their, and their sons, the kinsmen's, clothed in fine linen with cymbals, harps, and lyres, standing east of the altar, and with them 120 priests blowing trumpets in unison when the trumpeters and the singers were, they, were, were to make themselves heard with one voice to praise and to glorify the Lord. And when they lifted up their voice, accompanied by trumpets and cymbals and instruments of music, and when they praised the Lord saying, he indeed is good for his loving kindness is everlasting. Then the house of the Lord was filled with a cloud so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. God's presence is part of the heart that is fit for worship. In other words, God is present in the heart of a person who is fit for worship. There is a sense of awe and holiness in that reality. Second Chronicles 6, verse 22, next chapter. Um, here we have Solomon's prayer, a dedication to the temple. And in the midst of this prayer, he, he is asking um, for God's response. In verse 22, he says, If a man sins against his neighbor and is made to take an oath, and he comes and takes an oath before your altar in this house, then hear from heaven and act and judge your servant, punishing the wicked and bringing his way on his own head and justifying the righteous by giving him according to his righteousness. That, that speaks of a desire for God to respond justly. But let's read on. And if thy people, Israel, are defeated before an enemy because they have sinned against you, and they return to you and confess your name and pray and make supplication before you in this house, then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your people, Israel, and bring them back to, to the land which you have given them and to their fathers. When the heavens are shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you and they pray toward this place and confess your name and turn from their sin when you afflict them, then hear from heaven and forgive their sin 
your servants and your people, Israel. Indeed, teach them the good way, the way in which they should walk, and send rain on your, on your land, which you have given your people for an inheritance. Forgiveness is part of the heart that is fit for worship. Here, Solomon is asking God to forgive. But the heart that is ready to worship is also not only forgiven, but filled with forgiveness. Jesus says, when you come to the altar and remember that someone has something against you, leave your gift there, leave your sacrifice there, and go make things right between you and your brother. How does that happen? It happens through forgiveness. A heart that is not only forgiven, but forgiving is a heart that is ready or fit for worship. Let's go to verse 32. Also concerning the foreigner who is not from your people, Israel, when he comes from a far country for your great name's sake and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm, when they come and pray toward this house, then hear from heaven, from your dwelling place and do according to, to all for which the foreigner calls to you in order that all the people of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your people Israel and that they may know that this house which I have built is called by your name. A heart that is fit for worship is one that is inclusive. One that doesn't hold people who are not necessarily of us at arm's length. Rather, those a heart that welcomes even the foreigner in. That is a heart that God delights to commune with. Let's go to verse 34. And when your people go out to battle against their enemies, by whatever way you shall send them, and they pray to you toward the city which you have chosen, and the house which I have built for your name, then hear from heaven, their prayer and their supplication and maintain their cause. A heart that is ready for worship is one that experiences the support of God himself and is able to give support. To maintain their cause speaks of support that, that, um, that is there not because of what they've done, but who they are. That support, that willingness to gird up one another, to gird up another is part of what it means to be ready to worship. Verse 36. When they sin against you, and there is no man who does not sin, and you are angry with them and, deliver, and you deliver them to an enemy so that they 
take them away captive to a land far off or near. If they take thought in the land where they are taken captive and repent and make supplication to you in the land of their captivity, saying, we have sinned, we have committed iniquity, and we have acted wickedly. If they return to you with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their captivity, where they have been taken captive and pray toward their land, which you have given to their fathers and the city which you have chosen and toward the house which I have built for your name, then hear from heaven, from your dwelling place, their prayer and supplications and maintain their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you. A heart that is ready for worship is one that is eager to confess and repent. One that looks honestly at itself and is eager to confess before the Lord and experience repentance. The the response of God in that is restoration. And verse 40. Now, O my God, I pray thee, let your eyes be upon, let, let your eyes be open and your ears attentive to the prayer offered in this place. Now, therefore, arise, O God, to your resting place. You and the ark of your might, let your priests, O God, be clothed with salvation. And let your godly ones rejoice in what is good. O Lord God, do not turn away the face of your anointed. Remember your loving kindness to your servant David. Open ears, open eyes. And I think we can say an open heart is the the posture of a heart that is fit for worship, one that is open to what God's delight and desire is for us. And the response, the result of bringing that kind of a heart before God is chapter 7. Now, when Solomon had finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the house. And the priests could not enter into the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. And all the sons of Israel, seeing the fire come down and the glory of the Lord upon the house bowed down to the pavement with their faces to the ground and they worshiped and gave praise to the Lord saying, truly he is good. Truly his loving kindness is everlasting. We started with this idea that, that, um, People are like sheep. We are like sheep and we are inclined to stray. 
we are inclined to lose our way. Just like Israel lost its way. And Hezekiah brought back temple worship. As God designed it. And. I would suggest to you tonight that worship for us as believers is an absolute necessity for us so that we will not lose our way, so that we will not be led astray. Rather, we will be reminded regularly of God's Of, of, of who God is and his great intention for us and all of his creation. It's a practice that we pursue. It is something that we engage in intentionally. And it's absolutely necessary for us as individuals and as a people I, I, I know that worship is something that we, um, we find ourselves gathering for regularly. And I know it's because we're committed to do so. But I'd like to remind us that that gathering is not just a habit. It is... It is a clear intention on our part that we need to nurture, that we need to keep in front of us so that we don't find ourselves 200 years down the road not ever having experienced the glory of God in his temple, not knowing the difference between that which is worldly and that which is godly. So that we do not find ourselves lost sometime down the road and not knowing who we are. We belong to God. We are his people. We are called by his name. It does not make us Invulnerable, however. His mark on us is a mark that we need to maintain. Thankfully, his stamp on us is eternal. The stamp of salvation is something that he, uh, we have been sealed as believers, and it is, it is eternal. But God forbid that we forget that that stamp is on us. And one of the ways we remember that is to be reminded over and over and over and over again. Because we need to be reminded over and over and over and over again. It's who we are. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you that you have provided for us this opportunity to come together 
freely like this. We know that there are brothers and sisters around the world who love you like we do, and yet they don't have the freedom to gather in worship like this. And Lord, I, I just, I confess to you that, that it is, it's too easy for us very often to neglect to be intentional about giving you our undivided attention. I pray that you would stir within us the reminder that that is our task when we enter into this space with one another. And this space is not necessarily, it's not restricted to these four walls, but rather, Lord, the gathering of your church. We don't want to be those who forsake the gathering of the believers. We want to be those who are faithful to nurture this great treasure that we have. We pray that you would be honored by our living, honored by our speech, honored by our giving, honored by our worship. We love you with our whole hearts, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you guys. I will worship. That's the song. I will worship. Right? Amen and amen.